you saw, the title of today's message is The Church, How to Take Over a City. And that seems like an interesting um, side term, sermon title, but it really has a lot of impact on what we understand our role to be in the world, in the life of the city, and what our role is going to be as we make this move. So we need to be able to conceptualize what God is doing for us but what God is going to do also through us as we live out what it means to be a church. Now, one thing that I probably realized as we planted our church, it's been three years, and I think we all kind of saw this, is that every church plant really has an idealized view of how it wants to affect the city. You know, sometimes this involves intricate systems, strategic planning, big events, but when we read the Bible, we see somewhat of a different strategy on what the model of the church should be and how the church impacts the community around it. Now, when we look at this today, we are going to realize that some of us, and I came a bit from that background as well, but some of us came from that church background that took in the world, not of the world, to an unhealthy place. You didn't marry outside of your denomination. You didn't go to the movies. You didn't engage with the culture. You didn't know the people around you. You went to church, and then you completely sequestered yourself away from the rest of the world. So in turn, they were barely in the world. So how do we as believers in the modern age find that balance to be a separate body of believers who have a culture of Christ, but can also engage with the world around us with and for the purposes of the gospel? Well, our answer, as always, will come from Scripture as we will look at the instructions that God gives his prophet Jeremiah to give to the Israelites while they were in exile to the Babylonians in a different culture as well. So look with me, if you will, to Jeremiah 29. We're going to start at verse number four. And there is a bit of a familiarity that we have with this text, because we all want to run down on Jeremiah 29, 11, but I know the plans that he has for me. And prosperity out of context, the rest as you will. But we want to get today the actual context of this passage and what it means and what it can mean for us as a church. Jeremiah 29 and 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, Take wives for your sons and give your daughters into marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I do not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, 
when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you one more time for your word, God. Lord, there is such a tremendous impact that we can have as a body of believers on the community around us, God. And it takes work, it takes effort, but it takes a diligence and a servanthood to you, first of all, God. So we ask that as we get ready to jump into this message, that this will be a pivotal message in the life of our church where we will not just be a church. We won't just go to church, but we will be a church that affects the lives of the people around us. And we pray that this will be a turning point for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. And so this passage in Jeremiah is one of those interpretive texts that I have probably heard more than any other text people just mangle, just completely explode on. It has been taken out of context most significantly, as I mentioned in verse 11, when he talks about those plans that he had for prosperity. But those are plans that he meant for Israel. So we first have to contextualize what exactly is happening here in this text so we can understand what it means for the church. So as you may know, there had been this struggle with Israel and Babylon, which was ongoing. At one point, we know that Babylon had the Israelites in captivity for sure. But what they have come to realize that perhaps the best method for holding people is not through enslavement. We've seen it enough in our own history, by the way, that suppressed people don't stay suppressed people for long, do they? Eventually, suppressed people get tired of being suppressed and they revolt. The Babylonians learned this as well, and so they were trying a different method here with the Israelites. No longer did they want to enslave them, but now they thought it would be a better idea to get them to just assimilate naturally into the culture. Now, we saw this as well with Daniel and even the three Hebrew boys where they had all been given Babylonian names. Now, the reason the Babylonians wanted them to assimilate was because the quickest way to get rid of any people group is you start to wash away what makes them different than you. That's why any of these larger, larger scale religions and movements that have happened, they always wanted assimilation. They always want conformity because if we can get you to assimilate, then we'll get you to disappear. And that's what the Babylonians were attempting to do with the Israelites. If we can make you all culturally Babylonians, then there won't be Israelites much longer. And they thought that they could adopt, make them adopt the habits of the Babylonians. So it puts them in an interesting place, right? And it has done so for all of us who are as well believers. But we have to answer this question. How far is too far? How far can we go in order to be a part of and engage with the culture without completely succumbing to it? Well, it begins with it being on God's terms, right? We all knew what it meant to not be of the world. We all knew that growing up. 
but I don't think we ever quite mastered how to actually still be in it. We've all probably heard the saying, you so heavenly minded, you ain't no earthly good. And unfortunately, that has been the reality. So many of us tried to be so sanctified and so set apart that we had no value in the earth. And so today we're going to look at three practical ways to understand how we can impact the city, change the life and the culture of the people around us without being absorbed by it. And so our first point is um, pretty simple. It's the instruction that we see that God gives the Israelites. Live in the city. Live in the city. Look at God's first instruction here. He tells them to build houses in Babylon and to live there. He says plant gardens and eat what others have produced. See, essentially what he's saying here is that being a physical resident of a city is not living in it. You have to become a part of his culture to a degree. And you have to be willing to participate in his economic process. Now, it is strange that if God has allowed the Israelites to enter this godless place known as Babylon, that he's not instructing them to insulate and isolate themselves away from the other people. Why wouldn't he just instruct them, hey, look, Babylon is godless. So it would be better for you if you would just leave that city and maybe hope that this city would collapse in on itself. But you see, if they did do that, then Babylon would always be a godless city. If the people of God move out of a place or move out of an area because it's godless, well, how else is God going to be in it? And so his instruction here is, no, I don't want you to leave. I want you to live. I want you to live in the city. I want you to be an active participant in it. Listen, this may be a struggle for us to understand, but God has not instructed any of us to go and live off on some Christian reservation to preserve our sanctity. He has called us to live among a diverse group of people and show them that not only will we be physically in a place, but we will be involved in it economically as well. Now, I want you to think about it this way. Maybe I can make it a little bit more practical for you. If you are a good Christian man or woman, and that affects the way you live, that affects the way you spend your money, that affects the way you conduct your business, then how will anyone ever see or know that if you aren't active in the community that God has placed around you? That, for us, brothers and sisters, is in the city. In the city, we have this unique ability, as Tim Keller put it, to both be around more people that are like you and unlike you all at the same time. So your convictions that you hold, they come alive even more. In Babylon, Daniel is given a Babylonian name, but not just any Babylonian name. He was given the name Belteshazzar, which is a reference to the idol god Baal. Hananiah becomes Shadrach. Mishael becomes Meshach. 
And Azariah becomes Abednego. How, if they had been called to be separate, could they also accept names from the Babylonians? Because for them, that was an open door for them to get into the society itself. That was their opportunity to get jobs. Jobs that would shape the community, shape the economy. Look at it here in Daniel 2, 49. He says, Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Look at that. Though they were Israelites, they'd actually gotten themselves political positions within their, in the, the inner workings of Babylon itself. We saw this as well with Joseph, if you remember. When he was in Egypt, he eventually became the second in command to the Pharaoh. He'd gotten so connected to the culture that he adopted their dress and that his brothers, when they came to him, didn't even recognize that it was Joseph. Now, he'd used his position ultimately to provide for his family, and he constantly demonstrated the providence of God in his word. But we got we to gotta go back. How does Joseph end up in such a high-ranking political position in the first place? That's, that's what needs to be discussed. Joseph ain't in there because he's politically ambitious. He's not in there because he has these grandiose aspirations. In fact, he got there because of the opposite. We know the story. First, he ends up sold because his brothers are angry at him. And he ends up in Potiphar's house. But while in Potiphar's house, he proves himself more than just a slave or a servant. And he ends up being second in Potiphar's house until, that is, his wife lied. Then he goes to prison. And again, his hard and honest work makes him the second in command in the prison, the trusted leader there. He interprets a dream of the Pharaoh, and again, because of his honest and diligent service, he becomes the second in command in all of Egypt, and essentially he oversees all benevolence. Then when he helps his brothers, he moves them and his father to Egypt as well. Eventually, when he dies, he receives a traditional Egyptian burial, and though he was native to Israel, he was willing to live and die somewhere else because that was where God and to what God had called him. He gained influence, but not because he was trying to be an influencer, but because people knew his character. Now, I'm going to tell you about somebody that I know, and Tamara had the, uh, the fortune of meeting him as well. So one of uh, my friends, now he's a friend, is a man named Tom Shoup. And when I say that name, you have no idea who Tom Shoup is, but you know what Tom Shoup does. Tom Shoup is, was the vice president of all of Honda. There's no other context I can add to that. He was literally all of Honda, North America. He, he was the vice president until he retired about two years ago. His wife is our 12th grade sponsor, and I had Tom come in. I was texting back and forth, and I said, hey, will you come talk to our seniors? 
And when he told them, he wanted to explain to them how he ended up being the vice president of such a large corporation. And a lot of them asked, well, what's your degree in it? Thinking it would be engineering. He said, no, my degree is in political science. They said, how did you end up being the vice president of Honda? He said, well, I used to work for a politician in D.C., and I would write speeches, and he wasn't really good with the administration, so I did all the work for him. And one time he had to give a speech in front of Honda. And after he did it, their PR person reached out to me, and she said, look, you are a hard worker. I don't know what you could do, but we need you at Honda. And that's how he started. And he goes on to say, and the key to his success was I worked hard, I was nice to the people around me, and I never expected to get a raise. That's how he ended up being the vice president of Honda. He never expected it. And this is why I believe one of the requirements that the Bible gives us for being in elder or pastoral leadership is that you should be well thought of by outsiders. Listen to this. And maybe Tom and many of us are witnesses of this, but it's true. A good reputation will carry you places that a degree can't take you. I remember me, Chris, and Deanna were at our house watching um, one time a, doctor, a documentary on Clarence Avon. And it was interesting because there were these major superstars, there were these major deals getting done, concerts, politics, and almost every time there was a big meeting of these worldwide names, he was at the center of it. Finally, one time when they were planning a pretty big meeting between Michael Jackson and Prince, someone asked, who does Clarence work for? And the guy says, oh, Clarence, he works for everybody. He had such a good name and reputation that he was always able to connect people to one another, and that's what gave him influence. As Christians, this is how we gain influence and maintain influence in our society. We meet people, we know people, and we show them that while we are believers in this world, we have a different motivation for the work that we do. And so the first thing that we know is that we need to live in the city, but the second instruction is even stranger. He tells them to marry in the city. Now, again, this is an odd instruction. Marry and multiply. <laughs> Take wives. Why is this important? Is God really instructing them to intermarry with the Babylonians? Yeah, he was. Now, let's try to work through this. Were there times in the Bible that we saw God instruct the Israelites not to intermarry? Yeah, but why? Because he had told them if they would intermarry at different times, people who worship idol gods, that those idol gods would lead them astray as well. And that is always something that happens when people marry one another. There is a cultural exchange. Some people have gotten married and the conversation is, what denomination are we going to be? What church are we going to go to? Where are we going to live? How many children are we going to have? How are we going to discipline those children? These are all the compromises that come up. When it comes to belief, though, versus unbelief, there's always tension. 
So God instructs them that one of the ways they will change an unbelieving culture to a believing culture is that they will marry within that culture. Now, let's be clear. Because I don't know about to say, Brandon said I can go find me somebody in the world. It's not what I'm saying. God is not instructing us as Christians today to take on or even marry unbelieving spouses, yoking ourselves with them. But it does help us at least understand the impact that marriage itself has on the community. And it has even more impact as believers. That is probably why it frustrates me so much when believers are not only not eager to marry, but when they are adamantly against marriage itself. Look at how this is described here. He says, go, marry their sons and their daughters. And the hope would be that they would impact them and their belief in God. And then that meant that they would give birth to children who would hopefully become believers as well. Those children would then grow up and they would marry the other believing children. And then all those children would grow up and they would get jobs in the community. And in time, what was once a godless city has become a God city. An entire area would be reshaped. Why is Satan now attacking so much God's created order and the family and marriage? Because he knows that if he can keep us from marrying one another, from having children, then he will stifle us. And we have seen this in history. If you want to suppress a people group, if you want to destroy them, then you don't let them marry each other. You don't let them have children. So God tells them, no, go in, marry, have children. That is how you're going to change the city's landscape. There's this um, running joke at the school, and it's kind of true that I'm related to everybody. But then I started thinking about it. I really kind of am. One day I said, but how? How am I related to all these different people? I got about 50 cousins at the school right now. And one day it hit me. I was thinking, I was like, how am I related? And I started realizing it was literally because so many of my family members married so many different people. And that fact has connected me to other people that I wouldn't otherwise know. And this is why the new isolationist culture is so damning and damaging. I was having a conversation literally with someone this week who said, why can't the baby they were having with someone that they weren't married to just be theirs? Well, how ludicrous is that? But it's just that line of thinking that has even crept into the church. And it takes this whole pattern and it stifles the impact that we can have on where we are. It was said that the age that will come after Jesus' ascension would have several things happen that would seek to corrupt the world. And one of them was that people would forbid to marry. When our society just becomes a collection of individuals and when the church perfects that cause, then we become islands of uninfluential people who only have the place they worship in common. So first, he instructs us to live in a city. 
Second, he instructed them to marry in the city. Finally, he instructed them to seek the peace of the city. This one, again, is particularly interesting because the ESV here translates this as seek the welfare of the city. But if you look at the Hebrew, it literally translates to seek the shalom of the city, seek the peace of the city. So this is actually a pretty interesting command given here. Seek the peace of the city. It is interesting because I think all of us would understand if God had instructed them to seek the destruction of this ungodly city, but he doesn't. See, this is the instruction to Israel, but we have to remember the context for us as well. Babylon is wicked. It is wicked. It is wrecked with idolatry. The worship of Baal and the bowing down to Nebuchadnezzar contradicted what the Israelites subscribed to. Not only that, but they were living in Babylon unwillingly. They have been brought there. This is not a God-honoring place, yet God tells them to seek its peace. This is interesting because even in the New Testament, when Peter was ready to wage war against the Roman soldiers and he cuts the man's ear off, Jesus warns him of this. If you live by that sword, you are going to die by that sword. Why does he say that in that moment to Peter? Because if his disciples had only come to wage a physical war against evil, not only would their opponents be dead, but nobody gets saved in death. The war that God has called us to fight is not a physical warfare. It is spiritual. And the last thing we should do is mistake the evil in the world as a physical manifestation. It is a manifestation of the evil in men's hearts. And killing people don't save nobody. Only the gospel. Why, when, did, when challenged, did Jesus prove himself to be obedient to the laws of Rome, paying taxes, submitting to authority? Because if you are an open rebel, you won't be effective for long. Think about it. When they challenged him on whether or not he paid taxes, if he didn't, they would have taken him away right there and his ministry would have been cut off. This is the same reason we get this instruction from Peter in 1 Peter 2 and 13. He says this, he says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, but not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. 
For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, that is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been, give, you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And by his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Christians are to seek the peace of a place by being peaceful. We are not rabble-rousers. We are not revolutionists. We are not the rebellious, but we are the ones when all hell is breaking loose in the world, we are the ones who are trying to bring peace. Now, there are two ways that we do this as Christians. We do this first through our passive obedience. And that simply means by doing, by not doing what is wrong. We passively obey. But we also do this in our active obedience by doing actively what is right. We go against the grain of the world. If there are angry conversations about society, if there are conversations about disparities, we are the ones who stand up for righteousness and for truth. We as believers don't have the luxury of saying, well, I ain't asked to be here or we are Christians, so we don't have to abide by the governmental laws. We do. In fact, we should lead the charge in obedience. We should file our taxes properly. Amen. We should live in the right school zone that our children are going to. And not using my sister's address to make sure they can go to a better school. Amen? We should lead the charge of honesty in the society. Because the Bible says, if the righteous be scarcely saved, where will the sinner and the ungodly appear? We have to lead the charge of rightness and righteousness. And Peter says, though, by doing this, that no one will be able to bring a valid charge against us. So we live knowing that we are free to Christ. But look at this. We don't use that freedom as a means and a cover up for our sin. Well, I'm a Christian and I'm suffering so I can get away with it. No, we don't get away with wrongdoing. So practically speaking, how do we do this? How do we do it? We should make our faith come alive. If there are children without parents or homes, then Christians should be at the forefront of adoption. 
Who knows about adoption better than Christians? Every single one of us has been adopted into a new family of faith. If it is abuse, Christians should be the ones not to defend it, but who rush to stop it. If there are disparities in education, Christians don't complain, Christians don't blame, Christians become tutors, they become teachers, they start a school. They step in and they seek the peace of the city. They become the peace of the city in their work and in their effort. Listen, God didn't just call us all to be missionaries. He didn't call us all to be evangelists. He didn't call us all to be preachers. Some of us got to be teachers. Some of us have to be lawyers, business owners, because we need to be out there in the world on the front line meeting people. We went to the jump park yesterday and I ran into this couple and they're a believing couple and I ran into them and, we, and I realized we knew like so many different people in common and I remembered how I met them. I met them individually because I was a banker. And the Lord had put me before thousands of people every single day. And that gave me a sphere of influence. We are not couch potatoes. God has gifted us and placed us in the body and in the world to glorify him. People on your job in your sphere of influence should know who Jesus is because they know you. That's it. And if they don't, then what's your excuse? The Bible makes it clear. Where evil prevails, righteousness must much more prevail. We have an unusual opportunity, church. I don't know if you know this about Tarrant, but we are moving into a city that has literally had corruption in his politics. I was told by the mayor that it was stupid for me to get married so early and that at some point that sin was going to have to come out of me. I was told this by him. We have a people of one race who have been in that community, who have seen that community completely change around them. Many of them have felt angry and displaced. In fact, that's how we got our church. We are walking into Babylon. What are we going to do about it? Y'all, we are walking into Caesar's Rome. What are we going to do? Are we just going to be another church on the corner? Having service? Shut off from everybody else. Isolated. It's us and ours. It's our building. Or are we going to do something about it? Now you may think, well, how could this be? How could this come about? Well, let me ask you this. Are we willing to be the quiet, submissive people who humbles themselves to do the good work even if people don't know that we're doing it. Let me tell you how we're going to do it. 
Because there was an innocent lamb of God who forsook eternity to take on human flesh and do what? To bring us peace. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the Bible says, and the chastisement that brought us peace, it was on his back. Y'all, if we want to seek the peace of the city, we as well must take up our collective crosses and follow him. I'm only saved, you're only saved because he bore the brunt of the punishment that would give us peace. What did it say in the scripture? We should follow his example. Are we willing to bear our cross and bear the brunt of the pain and the shame and the hurt that it's going to take to see revival to see salvation, to see the gospel spread in a city. It's not going to be easy. But God has empowered us to do the real work. The Bible tells us in Acts, he says, what will be the evidence that you have the Holy Spirit? What's the evidence? You will be my witnesses. You mean to tell me, God, it takes power to be a witness? It takes the Holy Spirit to be a witness? Yeah. You know why? Because he's sending us as sheep in the midst of wolves. And the real work it's going to happen because we are willing to do daily what he did, which is take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for what you have done for us. Lord, you are so good to us, and you have given us an enormous charge and challenge as a church. God, the easy road is to just be like every other church, just be another church on the corner. That's the easy road to build a great name for ourselves, to build a great following for ourselves. But the real work, God, it comes when we don't just go to church but when we make the church come alive, when we are the church. But we just empower, ask you to empower us to fulfill and walk out the calling that you have for us. To live in the city in a way that people know that we are believers and they know who you are because they know who we are. God, that the sphere of influence that we have because we have taken on believing spouses and, and taken on their families and that the gospel will be spread through us and all of our connections. 
that we won't just use those as a means to network God, but we will use all those connections to let other people know who you are. And God, that we will be obedient believers in a sinful world that will give people the same example that we are following. That we will actively seek the shalom, the peace of the city by doing the hard work, God. So we know that the hard work is the heart work. Lord, we pray if there's anyone in this room whose heart is hardened to you, hardened to the gospel, there's anybody watching, that this is the day, this would be the day, as Pastor Mike said this morning, this is the day of your salvation. And we pray that you open unbelieving hearts, unbelieving eyes and minds, God. Lord, as we prepare to move and to take on this new challenge that you will send us people who know you, but you will also send us people who don't know you. And that the scope of an area will be changed because we are there. Because you were there. It is in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.